I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is the pastry chef and restaurateur, Sarah Beth Levine. Sarah Beth started selling her orange apricot marmalade in 1981, and the business grew to include several restaurants, a line of jams sold in specialty stores, and a bakery in Chelsea Market in New York City. She's the recipient of the James Beard Outstanding Pastry Chef Award, which she received in 1986. She's the author of Sarah Beth's Bakery, From My Hands to Yours. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So you started Sarah Beth's in 1981 when you were in your late 30s, and a lot happened before that. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your professional life before that. You had a bunch of odd jobs. What what were some of them? Oh, my God, those jobs. Well, the first job, and I don't want to call it a job, was going to school, getting my degree, And then I got married. And so the big job I had was raising those two daughters of mine. I had my children young, and uh, I went through a divorce, so I had to find my way. I was in my early 30s, and I began. What was the first thing I did? Well, I did a little teaching. Then I decided to go back to school and to redo my my bachelor's for, for science and was hoping to become a dentist. And during that time, I worked for a dentist for seven, eight years, ran his office, which was really great, learned a lot about dentistry. You know, I always loved science, and I was very intrigued at working with him. I mean, we did surgery. He trained me to do surgery with him, which was pretty amazing to see all that. And, you know, I got into it. And then when when Dr. Zito closed the practice, I I became an insurance salesperson, and I hated it. So here you are working in dentistry and insurance sales. How did life in the culinary world begin? Well, this this first husband that I was married to, his mother was an extraordinary cook. They were they were religious, religious Jews. Mrs. Firestone. This was Mrs. Firestone. And so Margaret taught me how to cook because after all, in my house with my father not being particularly uh, healthy in a sense of he had to watch his diet, no salt, no sugar, no this, no that. We had really bland food. But Margaret's food was like filled with herbs, filled with spices, filled with garlic. I remember I used to come home after having a dinner there, and my mother would say, oh my God, you have to go in another room. How much garlic did you eat while you were there? It's, it, it, right? So my mother you know, was on the other side. She never bought garlic and never put it in the food. Margaret was my first inspiration for food and for really opening my eyes to knuckly paprikash, to chicken, the little knucklies or the little things, those little dough balls. And she was a great baker. She made rugula and mandelbread and cookies and everything. And I was smitten by the baking. Were you, were you more smitten by her than by your Abs- former husband? Absolutely. <laughs> Oh my God, this was some. This was a wonderful woman. That's where my food journey began. You mentioned surgery, and now you know your field of pastry chef. You work a lot with your hands. Did you have any self knowledge that you were deft at working with your hands? Well, I've def- I've always done things with my hands. My mother was an extraordinary sewer. My mother would make curtains. My mother would make clothing for me. You know, you could find my mother at four o'clock in the morning, either knitting or sewing or doing mm-hmm. or fixing or cleaning or something. And it's funny because all of us in the family, everybody's are, we're all doers. My sister, all my brothers, we don't just sit around. And I myself, my mother taught me to knit, to crochet, to sew. 
you know, I'm a great fix-it person. In the, in the bakery, I fix a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's something's broken, I go look at it, and I figure it out, and I fix it. I'm like, I'm the repairman of the household. Mm-hmm. Considering that my husband's a contractor, was a contractor, mm-hmm. it's funny that I'm the Mr. Fixer in the family. And I played musical instruments, played the viola when I was in high school and college, and I was pretty proficient with the piano. So my hands, I knew my hands. I know that my hands are... You know that about Mm -hmm. yourself. So here you are. You're trying to earn a living. You're a single mom with two girls, and you get a phone call one day from your brother, who's living in Colorado, and that really helped to change the course of your your career. Um, Talk to me about that call. I said, well, I have to do something. I certainly have to feed these kids. And it was at that time when things weren't fantastic, and life was not very easy financially, emotionally, the whole picture of going through that divorce and everything and and struggling. And my brother called me and he said, I'm coming to New York. I said, I could use a great pick-me-up. I'm so happy you're coming. So my brother Mel, who lives in Boulder, Colorado, said, I'm coming to New York to visit and we're going to see Aunt Ruth. Who's Ruth? Ruth. Ruth Margaleth was my mother's sister. She was married to Jean. And, uh, they lived in Great Neck as well as, as, as we did. When, when uh, I was very young and we used to go to Aunt Ruth's house, there was always all this wonderful food. And all the wonderful food was there because Uncle Jean's mother was French and she was an amazing cook. We call, everybody called her grandmère, even though she wasn't our grandmother, we're not at all related, we called her grandmère. And she always made this wonderful marmalade, this orange apricot marmalade that whenever anybody would come to the house, you'd see it sitting on the table in the kitchen with its little glass jar with the little wire clamp lids, the orangey red rubber gasket that holds the little glass top on, one of those old, old jars. You'll see them at flea markets all the time. And that used to sit on the middle of the table. Everybody coveted the jar. Everybody wanted a jar. If you were very special and Grandma really liked you, she would give you a jar. If she was just okay with you and you took too many spoonfuls out of the jar, she'd take the jar away. (laughs) She had them hidden in a closet, and she decided who she gave them to and when she was about to bring it out. So when Mel called me, he said, maybe... Who knows? We know we know. Grandma was had passed already. Maybe Ruth. Maybe she made a jar, and there'll be a jar sitting on the table. So we get to the house, and we're sitting in the kitchen, and there's no marmalade on the table. And my brother, God bless him, he says to to Ruth, he said, oh, "We were so hoping there would be a jar of marmalade on the table." And she just turned and looked at us. She gave me a pencil, a piece of paper, and I'm going to give you the recipe. You're going to go to. The, I'm going to give you the ingredients. My brother and I looked at each other. We were like, "Oh my God, we're going to learn to make the marmalade." Our hearts were pounding. We got in the car. We went to the supermarket. Picked up the uh, the, the apricots, the oranges, pineapple, our sugar, everything. We got all the ingredients. We ran back there, right? And we made it. We spent the whole afternoon making this marmalade and taking very detailed notes. My brother's very detailed. Scientists are detailed. This sounds very serious. Were you really that serious at the time? Yes, because the marmalade was gone. Gone. So we make the marmalade. We even get a jar each to take home with us. 
and we're in heaven and we've got the recipe. Well, soon after, uh, Mel calls me and he said, I'm buying you a ticket. You need, you need a change of environment. We're going to make the marmalade and we're going to be together. So he said, we're going to make 50 jars and we're going to give it to friends, my friends out here. You'll take a couple of jars back with you and we're going to do this marmalade together. And, and at this point, did you think, huh, you know what? This might make an interesting business. No. <laughs> we go there. We make the marmalade. I come home. I'm eating the marmalade. I make it again. In the interim, I meet Bill Levine, my charming prince, charming prince, charming. You're now, Billy Blue Eyes. Your now husband. My now husband. So I met Bill, and uh, Bill was a contractor at the time. He had his own construction company with his partner, and they were working on a cafe on 34th Street. And I would go and help these guys. I liked that better than selling life insurance. And I got really into it. So to make a long story short, for the opening of the cafe, I decided that I'm going to make a pot of the marmalade and we'll serve it with croissants at the opening party. Well, nobody was really talking about the croissant. Everybody was talking about this marmalade. And somebody must have told the media or someone, because I get get a, a phone call from Gail Green. She was the big, her, she was with New York Magazine for many, many years. She's terrific. Mm-hmm. And she's a wonderful writer and has written many books. So Gail said, talk, somebody had told her about it. She tasted it. She called me to find out where she could buy it. I told her, well, we can't really buy it anywhere. We're just serving it there. She says, well, if you ever decide to sell it and it's available, let me know. So Gail Green uh, planted the seed for you to start a marmalade business. Kind of. I think the whole the whole process of being in food and preparing the marmalade and bringing it down to the cafe and being in the environment of the cafe. I've, I've always loved to cook, so to see people enjoying food is a pleasure of mine that I've always had. And it just unfolded. I was putting it in jars and selling it in some small stores in, in Manhattan and at Balducci's and Bloomingdale's. And the Natural Source, which used to be a wonderful place many years ago on the Upper West Side. Now, you say that you were in Balducci's and Bloomingdale's. How did you get those accounts? I went down to Balducci's. Right. I said to Balducci's, um, this is a very unusual product. I don't think you've tasted anything like this. I think you should try this. And they would eat it, and they, would, they ate it, and they said, oh, my God, what is this? This is amazing. I said, well, this is our old secret family recipe. <laughs> and they but said, didn't... is anybody else buying this in Manhattan? Who, any, have you sold it to anybody else? I said, well, Bloomingdale's has it. In fact, I'm delivering to them this week. Oh, Bloomingdale's has it? Well, we'll take four cases. I left Balducci's. I went over to Bloomingdale's. So I went to Bloomingdale's, and I told them Balducci's bought it. Well, when they heard Balducci's bought it, they had to have it. <laughs> so they bought it, uh-huh. and they bought a lot of it, and they featured it in their windows. They, all of a sudden, overnight... My marmalade jars with their little cloth hats and their little gold t- little ties around the neck are sitting on 59th Street. That's how it happened. So I, you know, if it was in Bloomingdale's and it was about Ducci's, then Macy's wanted it. Before you know it, it, it started to take off. 
your husband was very supportive, and he, he was fantastic. He worked in your apartment with you, putting the marmalade together. And oh, he would he would sit at night and label the jars, and Jennifer and would put the little hats on. Your and daughter, my daughters would put the little things on. Everybody was we were one big happy sticky family. We roped off parts of the kitchen and put in candy stoves. I mean, my God, the things we did in our kitchen, and we changed one whole bathroom. We didn't use it as a bathroom. We totally turned that into a washing station so that we could, I could wash these big pots in the bathtub. The bathtub was no longer a bathtub. And it was just, it just start, started to happen. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the pastry chef and restaurateur, Sarah Beth Levine. We'll hear more from Sarah Beth coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is the pastry chef and restaurateur, Sarah Beth Levine. Sarah Beth started selling her orange apricot marmalade in 1981, and the business grew to include several restaurants, a line of jams sold in specialty stores, and a bakery in Chelsea Market in New York City. So you and Bill built this first cafe uh, on Amsterdam Avenue on the Upper West Side of New York City. And in addition to the marmalades and the jams, you, thanks to your first husband, had the recipes from your mother-in-law. You baked croissants. Well, well, what happened was we started with her with the bunt cakes and the and the coffee cakes and then I hired bakers who had baked before and were mm-hmm. professional bakers and they added to the repertoire and they trained me and so we all worked together and they stayed for a period of time and then when they left others came and mm-hmm. that's how it it evolved. just evolved learning mm-hmm. from so many people I was so blessed and lucky to be able to learn while I worked and at what point did you say okay let's open up a full-fledged restaurant the customers we're asking for more. So it was a natural for us to to begin to serve people breakfast. And I came home one day and I said, you know what? I have a great idea. I'm going to make oatmeal tomorrow. I'm going to make eggs. You know how I love to make eggs and you love my eggs. And I'm going to start serving breakfast. My husband looked at me like I was crazy. Mm-hmm. He was still doing his thing with the construction. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until three or four years into the Sarah Beth empire that mm-hmm. Bill decided to phase out the construction and to join me in our enterprise because I really needed a partner. Mm-hmm. It was it was a lot. Now we take for granted we say, okay, so you serve breakfast and you were serving these pastries and but in the mid nineteen eighties you were really one of a kind. There were not a lot of lovely breakfast restaurants around. Well, and you're known as kind of a pioneering that cuisine or that that breakfast that that world of yummy pancakes and lovely breakfasts in New York City. Well I think that in New York City you the only place you really that people would go to eat something in the morning would be the like a corner deli or a little coffee shop. I believe at that time the only place you really could get a good breakfast mm-hmm. was in the good hotels. But on a daily basis, there really wasn't a place to sit down and have breakfast. And again, I just something that I just fell into. And the first thing I made, my very first thing I started with, was the oatmeal. Oatmeal in a double boiler, which would take 40 minutes to make a big pot of it. Capital. Where did you get capital to fund your restaurants? 
Good question. The original capital came from the sale of his interest in of Bill's interest in that cafe. And then what happened was we were able to get small the SBA loans. We funded it, we borrowed, we paid it all back, and we built built our all our restaurants with our own loans and money within the businesses that we just kept putting back into the business. How did word get around, uh, even even at the start of your cafe and then later your restaurants? Was there one or two articles that really, you know, helped pop your business? Well, yes. What, what happened was a lot of notable, famous people began coming to Sarah Beth's. I remember the very first Thanksgiving after all the pies were done and we were just cleaning up that night and I was so tired because I'd never went to sleep the night before. And we just cleaned up the kitchen and we went home and I remembered I came back the very the next morning just to make sure everything was okay because it was right near my apartment. And we're in there and it's chilly out and there's like, it's Thanksgiving Day and there's like a knock on the window on the door. And we go to the door and there's a woman and a man bundled. I remember she was wearing a red coat and she wanted a tomato soup. But then I have a quart of tomato soup. I go in the back, I get a container of tomato soup and I hand it to her and I said just enjoy it have a nice Thanksgiving that was Diane Sawyer Diane Sawyer of ABC News right you know of Good Morning America exactly just word of mouth Mm -hmm. it was just word of mouth because it was something new it was something different we were in the Times so it was pretty amazing and we were on the you know the business section the front page of the business section of the New York Times Okay. And so, and of course, numerous times in New York Magazine and and in Detail Mag, all the old magazines, and that's how Gourmet, uh, New Yorker, Barbara Kostikian wrote about me many times. Uh, Mimi Sheridan has written about me. So it just it just happens. So, in addition to pioneering breakfast life in New York City, you actually were the first restaurant. You were you actually were the first no smoking restaurant. Yes. Before it became illegal to smoke in restaurants. And there's a there's a story about Billy Joel smoking in the restaurant. What happened there? Oh, my goodness. Well, anybody who came in with cigarettes, either they had to put out their cigarettes or they couldn't stay. You know, so my, my reputation was like, oh, God, it's her. You know, when they she's coming after us, we're going to get we're going to get hatcheted for these cigarettes. Yes, you cannot smoke in the restaurant. I don't like the smell of it. It doesn't work with the food. It's awful. So what happened was I'm down in the basement baking and I smell the cigarettes in the restaurant. I can smell them. I go upstairs. I go over to the service. I said, there's somebody smoking in the restaurant. They said, we know. I said, well, go. Please ask them to put out their cigarette. We can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? It's Billy Joel. I said, I don't care who it is. There's no smoking in the restaurant. You don't want to do it? Not a problem. I'll go over and I'll take care of Billy Joel. I go over, he's sitting in the corner, he's got his newspaper, he's doing his thing, smoking a cigarette, and I tell him, I'm sorry, but you have to put out your cigarette. He said, oh, please, can't I just smoke my cigarette? I said, no, I'm so sorry. I love your music, but I don't love your cigarettes. You have to put out the cigarette. He said, one more puff, and he's about to just take it. And I reach over, and I take the cigarette from between his fingers. I put it out in his glass of water, and I take the glass away. Next day or two days later, 
in the newspaper is Uptown Girl Snuffs Out Downtown Boy or whatever from his song. <laughs> but yes, we were the first restaurant in New York to not have smoking. And I worked very hard with a guy to make that happen. I went down to town hall. We, we went to hearings. We talked about how it doesn't affect a restaurant's success. And it just this guy, Joe... Uh, Joe Turner, Crusade. Now, incidentally, your voice is quite raspy, uh, and I have. Have you ever smoked? Did I ever smoke when it, I was very it, young? It, it sounds like a voice that might have smoked a cigarette or two. Not many. I only smoked. I smoked when I was very young. Mm-hmm. I don't think I smoked after my you know early twenties. I smoked in college a little bit, yeah. and I smoked uh, when I was first married. But I was never really a big smoker. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the pastry chef and restaurateur, Sarah Beth Levine. Sarah started Sarah Beth's in 1981, and the business includes jams, restaurants, and a bakery in Chelsea Market in New York City. My husband, he loves your creamy tomato soup. What, what's the deal with that soup? I, I love tomato soup, and I decided when I was going to make soup for the for very early years of the restaurant, I was going to create this great tomato soup. It was creamy, delicious, chunky, and all. So one day, I saw we were out of tomato soup. I sent one of the people who worked for us. I said, go across the street to the the market and get, get the... Um, we need onions, we need garlic, and scallions, please. They go across the street... And they bring the onions and the garlic, and the, and but what they think are onions are not onions. Turned out to be shallots. So next thing you know, we cut. She, I said, cut up everything up. I didn't look at it, and all of a sudden the soup had a whole new flavor from the shallots, and I liked it. Mm-hmm. I said, what what's that's new in here? What did you put in here? I said, what did you buy? So she showed me. I said, oh, this is a shallot. Next thing that happens is that I'm making omelets, and I hand somebody to a. Uh, I have somebody. I needed some cheese, some grated cheddar cheese for a cheddar omelet. And they're passing the cheddar down at the same time where somebody's handing up a bowl of the tomato soup. And they collide, and a bunch of the cheddar cheese falls into the tomato soup. Well, as soon as it got a little bit quiet for the moment, one of the servers comes in, and she said to me, is anybody eating the soup over here? I said, no. She said, there's a lot of cheese in it. I said, I know it had an accident. She tasted it. She said, you have to taste this. This is really good. So the soup wound up having to have that garnish of the cheddar cheese. It makes the whole bowl of soup. It takes <gasps> it to a whole new place. Mm-hmm. The shallots add wonderful flavor. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot happens in food, mistakes and recipes, accidents. I want to talk about your parents for a minute. They were furriers. Can you describe your parents to me? Yes. My <laughs> mother was beautiful. Mm-hmm. My mother was like a movie star. And my father, he too, was like a movie star. I mean, if I could liken them to anybody, I would liken them to to Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. First of all, they were so fashionable. They both, my mother was a, was a fur model, and my father was a uh, resident fur buyer. And they met at one of the gala events at that time during that period. And my mother was just a wonderful dancer, and my father as well. And I can remember evenings of when I was a child of watching them. They would put on the old phonograph and just dance around the living room. They were really something. Your your mother was an entrepreneur. Could you describe what what her career was like? My father 
had a heart condition at a very young age. And it kind of changed their life, lives. And it was recommended that we all move to a warmer climate would be better for him. So we picked up and we moved. And the outcome of the move was that my mother wound up in Florida. And so we lived in Sarasota. And my father really stayed most of the time in New York. And we never, as kids, ever understood why we had to go and move to Florida. But there we were. My mother opened a fur shop. God knows she's a fantastic salesperson, amazing organized businesswoman. And there my mother built, in the middle of Sarasota, Florida, a, a fur shop in the middle of the heat. She had a beautiful little shop with this little French provincial furniture, her little antiques, and, and her little French desk. And my mother was there. We were there for nine years. And then we came back. My father decided it was time to bring the family back. So mother closed down the shop, which she wasn't thrilled about. The marriage wasn't really working. My sister came about, my little accident sister, my darling sister. And... Uh, and my mother, my parents separated, divorced, and my mother remarried to another furrier. Did you sense that your mother was lonely during this time? Uh, I think my I don't know if she was lonely. She was very, very busy. She worked. Mm-hmm. We had a working mother. In the, in the 50s, we had a working mother, mm-hmm. which was so unheard of. Everybody else's mother was at home. And we had people taking care of us and housekeepers, So that, and my mother went to work. How much do you see your mother in yourself? I mean, even when you got divorced as well, um, and you were facing adversity, did you ever feel like, huh, you know what, I'm kind of echoing my mother's world a little bit? Well, I really think that our mother was a, a she set up an amazing example to my sister and myself, as she was strong. And my and we and I know for myself, it's very easy at that time for women to want to be at home and be taken care of mm-hmm. by a man and being married. It's it, it's a big step at that. It was a big step at that time for women to go out there and do their own thing. You called her at some point when you were really in the doldrums. Yes, yes. I remember there was it's not that I called her. It was like I remember, you know, I we I took the girls and I lived with her for about a year, and then with I, your mother. Yes, after the divorce, I remember sitting in the evenings, late at night, talking to her. I was working for the dentist at the time. And I said, look at Mel. He's a meteorologist, a successful guy. Look at Jay. He's a veterinarian. Look at look at Jeffrey. He's, he's a, an orthopedic surgeon. And Lynn, she's in school becoming some artsy-fartsy person in her lifetime. She'll probably become. And I said, look at me, Ma. I'm just a nobody. Educated, but just a nobody. And my mother looked at me in my face. She said, none of my children are nobodies. You're all somebodies. You just wait and see what's going to happen in a few years. And then you tell me you're a nobody. And I looked at her like she was like crazy. Who knew? Who knows what's going to happen? You don't know. It just happened. It wasn't planned. It was almost like you wake up in the morning and all of a sudden you're a whole new person. How much did your... Being at rock bottom after you were divorced and trying to to knit these jobs together, a career for yourself, how much did that fuel your desire to really achieve when you started Sarah Beth's, for example? Well, I have I've, I've inherited a wonderful trait from my mother. My mother has an extraordinary work ethic. My mother is as honest as the day is long. It's such an old-fashioned phrase, but that's how my mother was. And my mother taught us that nothing comes easy. You have to work at it. Nobody's going to hand it to you. 
unless you're born into a family where there's so much money that you never have to work. And that isn't a good thing either. That promotes laziness. That's what she used to say. But she always used to encourage me to, that, to do my thing. I'll find it. And, and, and I saw it in her. Either you have that work ethic and that dedication or you don't. And if you couple that with doing something that you love, and I loved what I was doing when it started. Mm-hmm. I knew it's what I wanted to do when it began. Mm-hmm. I knew I was doing the right thing, and I just kept going. Right, and so it wasn't so much adversity fueling you as much as just your innate work ethic fueling you. That's right. And and my husband was once, once interviewed on, on the radio, and somebody asked him, what is it like to work for Sarah Beth? And my husband said, if you give her an honest day and you do your work, you're going to love being with Sarah Beth and you'll work with her forever. But if you are a lazy guy or gal and you try and cheat her in your work, forget it. It's it's over. And you know, and that's my work ethic. I work mm-hmm. to this day. Mm-hmm. I go in, I work. If there's something happening in the bakery and we're overwhelmed mm-hmm. and they need another person on the bench to roll bread, I'm there. Today, we have to do a lot of pie shells and get them stored up in the freezer. We make them all by hand. If I see they're all around the table, I go right in there mm-hmm. and I join in on the line. Wherever fire has to be put out, I'm there, whether it's in the retail, whether it's writing my book, whether it's running over to the restaurant, if they ran out of a dessert, if they're shorthanded, I'm on the line helping prepare the desserts. You have to love it. Incidentally, I want to go back to uh, Gromer. Uh, when you were growing up, you thought Gromer's recipe was from Paris, where yes. she came from. Uh, but later in your life, uh, you learned that that wasn't the case. Uh, what is the real story of that recipe? In the year 2000, I was fact-checking for my book that I had been working on then and then pet put aside. And I called my cousin, the grandson of Gromer, and I said, Don, I have to read you the introduction to the book. Um, I'm fact-checking. I want to make sure my facts are correct. So he patiently sat and listened on the phone for 20 minutes as I read the introduction. When I got all finished, he said, where did you ever get that story from? Let me tell you the story. It turns out that she didn't covet the recipe clutched her bosom from Paris. When she arrived in New York with my uncle and her children without her husband, she was living in the Bronx. And it was her neighbor who made it and sold it. It was during the Depression. She gave her the recipe and told her, the only time you can make this is to support your family and feed the kids. So you, this, is a, this is your secret recipe I'm giving you to save you if you need to be saved ever. Well, she didn't have to work because she lived with Ruth and Jean, who worked, and they took care of her her entire life. But she always felt that she had to make this recipe in the secrecy, and so she made it in the basement of their home. When I found this out from my uh, cousin, it all was like such a surprise to me. To have this recipe when you're down and out and having to make a living for yourself, you can sell it to feed your family. Here I was, down and out. Ruth gave me the recipe. I began to make it, change my life. Made in the Bronx. Where do we make the jam? Today, right now the pot is running in the Bronx. Who delivers it to all the restaurants in Manhattan? Uh, One of our drivers who lives right across the street, he looks at the imprint on the building of Noonan Towers where Grandmere lived with her neighbor where the marmalade was born. Coincidence, how could anybody invent such a story? It's like something. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
My guest has been the pastry chef Sarah Beth Levine. Coming up, we'll meet Andrew Goldsworthy, a leading sculptor who uses outdoor materials like wood, stone, and leaves. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. From Scratch.